Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 9th, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Commentary Magazine, the 74-year-old in monthly of intellectual analysis, political probity, and cultural criticism from a conservative perspective. We invite you to join us, as always, at commentarymagazine.com, where we give you a few free reads and then ask you to subscribe. So today I'm going to declare hoisting on their own petard edition of the Commentary uh, podcast. Uh, I have two particular topics I want to address One, uh, in the rollout of his book, uh, Michael Cohen, the president's former fixer and now, you know, enemy and antagonist, has revealed a phone call that he taped with CNN chief Jeff Zucker uh, in March of 2016, where Zucker offered debate praise and guidance for Trump to Cohen, called Trump the boss, said he had all sorts of proposals he wanted to float by Trump to discuss what he might do for CNN after the election. Uh, Some of the quotes here are, I'm very conscious of not putting too much in email as you're a lawyer, as you understand, Zucker is heard telling Cohen, who it never occurred to him might be taping the call. And as you know, as fond as I am of the boss, he also has a tendency like, you know, if I call him or I email him, he is then capable of going out at his next rally and saying that we just talked. And I can't have that if you know what I'm saying. It's not that I don't want to talk to him every day. I've just got to be careful because I, I've just got to be careful. I just don't want him talking about it on the campaign trail. But you know what? I'm going to give him a call right now and I'm going to wish him luck in the debate tonight. So for almost four years, CNN's Brian Stelter has been ranting and raging and screaming and yelling about the about the duplicitous relationship between Fox News and the Trump campaign and the hoax uh, conspiracy between them. And he's written an entire book about it and all of this. And here we have Jeff Zucker, <clears throat> a former head of NBC, head of CNN, sucking up to Trump behind the scenes in 2016, uh, looking to take advantage of Trump's ability to make money for him and knowing that this is a, a conversation that he could not have with Trump or uh, or on email or anything like that because Trump might use it and then he would be exposed as a hypocritical slime bucket. Please chime in. Well, this is a big, a big revelation if you've only committed to uh, having amnesia over how the network covered Donald Trump the candidate. Uh, the Donald Trump the candidate was... Uh, a source of entertainment. And it, we talked about it endlessly, the some $2 billion estimated in free advertising he got from cable news networks, of which CNN was a major contributor. Um, his capacity to dominate the airwaves was a function of the fact that he was entertaining and that Jeff Zucker knows entertainment. Maybe he knows news, but he knows entertainment. Um, the latter is debatable. The former's are, are the, the former's uh, debatable. The latter is certainly not. So um, they knew that Donald Trump was a money-making entity. And once it became more profitable to be against him than for him, then they switched gears. But it's all a business strategy, and everybody knows this. It also, it became more profitable to be against him than for him as um, it became uh, clear, really, that he won. That wasn't, uh, right up until that moment, um, there was a kind of rooting for him in, in media and in liberal media because he was supposed to lose. It was a joke. Um, this was the greatest thing that had ever happened because uh, by choosing Trump, the, the Republicans were blowing themselves up. This was great. Let's, let's, let's celebrate. Not only is he fantastic copy and wonderfully entertaining every time he appears, but um, this, is, this is this great spectacle of watching our, our enemies destroy themselves. Well, not to get too media oriented. I'm sorry, Christine, briefly, but how big, how good of a strategy is this? I mean, it's not working out for CNN, right? To be well, it's not working out for CNN. 
Well, here's the thing about CNN. See, CNN has not known where to place itself, except it wants to place itself as not the left-wing network, which is MSNBC, and not the right-wing network, which is Fox. So it's sort of in the middle and therefore is a more corporate-friendly advertising vehicle. And it makes a lot of money, even though its ratings are terrible relative to the other two, it's still a very profitable division, which is one of the reasons that Jeff Zucker still has his job through various changes in the ownership structure of CNN's corporate uh, parent, because uh, the results are there. I think CNN makes like hundreds of millions of dollars a year in profit. Um, and it, as I say, it, it maintains this weird position. Whereas where uh, it is easier to do corporate image advertising on CNN than on, on the other networks because they're too provocative. But there, but there's a way in which I think um, even that strategy does not have is not a healthy one for the long term. If you look at how and this isn't just doesn't just apply to CNN, it also applies to previously considered mainstream publications like The Atlantic magazine, for example, you'll have contributors or, you know, you have contributors like Jamel Hill at, at the Atlantic, who says outrageous things on Twitter. And the response is always, oh, she's just a contributor. She, she doesn't really affect our brand. But people do associate her statements with that brand. And in the same way, when Brian Stelter is like, you're preeningly morally grandstanding about Fox News, you can't, that is identified with CNN. And I do think that the conservative critique of the network is fair in the sense that you can't really, you know, blame all Fox News for everything that appears on Fox News. Like if a crazy guest on Tucker Carlson, you know, says something crazy, which is what they're brought on to do, you know, that that taints the whole network. Well, then that also applies to CNN. And I do think that they're trying, Zucker's been trying to split the difference this entire presidency by allowing some of his folks to be extremely uh, uh, sanctimonious. And people don't like sanctimony. I don't think they like it in the context of partisan networks, which they know what to expect. That's why they watch it on MSNBC or Fox News. So uh, there have been there were two indictments of the late Roger Ailes. One of them obviously relates to his appalling personal conduct and his, you know, the treatment of women and the and all of that, that that really brought him down. But the other is this idea that he was. Uh, in intimate and in bed with the, um, you know, with the Republican Party as a former Republican operative guy who worked to get uh, George H.W. Bush elected and all of that. Um, and uh, the thing was that Ailes uh, and Murdoch and, you know, were opposed to Trump's becoming the the nominee of the Republican Party, as far as we can tell. Um and that there was a moment in like the spring or late spring of 2016 when Ailes basically said, well, obviously none of these guys is going to do it. So we better we better like sue for peace. But if you remember, Trump's had two main enemies in 2015, 2016. One was CNN and Zucker, whom he went after as part of his general media strategy. And this idea somehow that Zucker was supposed to owe him fealty because uh Zucker had been head of NBC when The Apprentice went on the air. And the other was Fox. It was Megyn Kelly. Remember Megyn Kelly bleeding from her hoo-ha or whatever the hell it was he said and stuff like that. And this idea that Fox was being disloyal to him and that Fox should pay for that. Um, Ailes famously, you know, was supposedly giving behind the scenes uh, aid and support and advice to Republican candidates. Well, in this Michael Cohen story, literally, Ailes, uh, uh, Zucker offers a piece of advice to Cohen to give to Trump about a debate, a Republican debate, where he says, you know what you should do? Whoever's around Trump today should just be, uh, whoever's around him today uh, should just be calling him a con man all day so he's used to it, so that when he hears it from Rubio, it doesn't matter. Hey, con man, hey, con man, hey, con man. He thinks that's his name, you know? So basically, you guys should just, like, get him used to being called a con man so when Rubio calls him a con man, uh, he can handle it better. So we literally have the head of a broadcast network giving advice to Trump, a news network, and it's not Ailes. It's not Ailes. It is Jeff Zucker. 
which I just think is 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 staggering in the not that he anyone can do whatever they want to do. It's just a question of who walks around like a cock of the walk, acting like somehow you know he's moral and his rivals and enemies are terrible. So is there fallout here? Does he weather no. it just fine? I I I that's going to be a very very interesting question about how this goes because of course so many people in media uh it you know want a contract <laughs> a commentator contract um so many people who sort of offer these opinions uh, are are you know are find themselves in a position where they they they're going to find it difficult to attack because they they have skin in the game. Um, I mean, who who ordinarily would offer this kind of attack? Brian Stelter, right? So it'll be like I say, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. It's. Um, it's a it's a pretty startling event, is all I'm saying. Given given the given, so that's the first hoist on their own petard. The second, uh, and Abe is particularly excited about this, is the announcement by the uh, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences of a new set of guidelines uh, that it will be necessary for films to meet if they are to be nominated for Academy Awards beginning uh, with the Oscar ceremony that takes place in 2024. So that's basically two years from now or two and a half years from now. Abe, what is, what is it that uh, is being called upon here? Uh, or what is the, what does the Academy say it is now going to require films to do if they are to be nominated? They have to submit, I think, privately to the Academy, um, uh, a description of how they are being inclusive and um, diverse um, along, of course, identity lines in order to be eligible for an Academy Award. So this, so this is, I mean, you know, this is a, a total institutional shaping of the entertainment industry because for movies and a huge chunk of culture generally, the, the Oscars really is the game. I mean, not because you, ha- you have to win one in order to, to, to be a successful um, producer or director or anything like that, but but that is the the goal is to get is to be among those nominated name. That's 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 where the attention is. That's the distribution. That's that's the that's where you be. That's where the stars are made. Um, so and now in order to enter the game, you have to play identity politics to the satisfaction of the Motion Picture Academy officially. And this is yet again um, uh, an American version of what happened during the Chinese Cultural Cultural Revolution in the 60s and 70s, during which um, Mao's wife, Zhang King, was put in charge of all performance and um, performing arts in in China. Um, And she took, took that and ran and particularly changed... Chinese opera, um, remaking it into revolutionary opera. Uh, there were eight model operas um, that were um, permitted, uh, and these were all they had the the rules. They had rules just like the Academy will have rules. Um, these were these they had to be about revolutionary themes. Um, they could no longer be about um, ancient Chinese mythology or Confucianism. Um, because uh, the Mao sought to eradicate the four olds, old culture, old ideas, old beliefs, <clears throat> um, and old, I forget the last four old, but uh, <laughs> the, they're, they're all almost syn- synonyms anyway. It's bas- basically the, 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 as I say in the, in the last piece I wrote, the, the entire mental life of, the established mental life of the country. Um, so this is, this is um, right out of the Mao playbook, uh, once again, these these the movies will have to be on our revolutionary themes, um, which are identity, 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 and identity. So I have a question about these rules, though. Um, if they're going to be doing this identity politics bean counting in order to be uh, viable uh, admit, admissions for uh, Academy Award consideration, 
What does this mean for the people? A lot of the discussion was about what happens behind the camera, but what about the ongoing debate raging in Hollywood right now about how to, whether or not actors and actresses can portray things they're not in front of the camera, right? We've seen this particularly with regard to trans roles, the idea that a non-trans actor should never play a trans role and the kind of weird Mobius strip-like logic that this sends you down when you actually are making a film about someone who becomes trans, like who plays the before. And I mean, it it becomes kind of confusing. So I'm curious if this is also going to apply to the standards uh, for identity politics, if they're measuring roles or the people playing the roles, because those are two very different things. Yeah, and there's there's no end, and it's it it will in- inevitably another one be another one of those examples where um, once you give in and try to appease the mob and play by their rules, they will get you and destroy you. I mean, there's this. It's been ongoing for some time in in entertainment where you know if you uh, bend over backwards to create uh, some social justice um, project. Uh, in a movie, let's say, if you want to make a movie about the civil rights movement. Well, that's great. Uh, who's directing it? Is the director a black uh, person of color? Oh, it's a white. Well, well, why would you have a, a white male um, directing a movie about uh, 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 a black feminist, for example, or something like that? So it, it never ends. And, and once once you start playing their game, um, they will they will find all the, the chinks in the armor and go after you. Okay, so part of this, yes. <laughs> just because you have to laugh to keep from crying, was um, this was reported in the LA Times. And the LA Times reported that the, these standards will be enforced via spot checks of sets. Now, it can be kind of difficult to eyeball someone's ethnicity, right? I mean, it's it's not something that appearances can be ambiguous. So what's really needed here, in my mm-hmm. view, is a system of badges. Um, you can wear your, your ethnic identity on your, your sleeve, maybe, or on your lapel, um, or maybe run a pencil through someone's hair so it has the proper tensile strength. You know, these are all very fresh ideas, uh, to, and all in the name of an, uh, enlightenment and anti-racism to, uh, to enforce, you know, proper standards here. Uh, okay, look, here's what I want to say. I, I enjoy this. I am, I am delighted by this. I'm delighted by this for this reason. For 40, 50 years, we have been getting lectures on the proper constitution of the American experiment by Hollywood, by a lot of these people who have never gone to college, have never read a book, you know, who are who are in the positions that they are in because they are canny and ruthless if they're behind the scenes or they're really good looking and have some kind of weird indefinable charm if they are in front of a camera. And they think because of their position uh, making popular entertainment that they are, uh, they are, it is proper and in fact uh, expected and good for them to deliver themselves of their opinions about how America should be run and constituted. Right. Okay. So, here we are. This industry is overwhelmingly liberal and overwhelmingly democratic. Uh, God knows how much money uh, Biden is going to raise this year alone. Um, Obama, of course, has uh, yeah, Obama and, and and his wife Michelle have a hundred million plus dollar deal with Netflix. Um, and on and on and on. Documentaries, hagiographic hey, documentaries about AOC and Stacey Abrams and I, God knows what. But let's talk about how this industry actually does what it does. Okay, in a world in which uh, feminism uh, and sort of the uh, idea of, 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 of egalitarian uh, roles between the sexes has... Um, you know, is now like half a century old. 92% of all Hollywood productions are directed by men. 92%. According to some calculations, 75% of the dialogue spoken in American movies is spoken by male characters. Uh, Movies are made overwhelmingly for male audiences based on the theory that boys, particularly teenage boys, are the most malleable and... uh, uh, easily defined audiences and that the world is only interested in male entertainment, action stuff, superhero stuff, all of that. And therefore, um, 
in the golden age of Hollywood, when there were there was one or there were one or two female directors, or there were a bunch of screenwriters, Mo, it was close to 50-50 whether the fair was designed to be seen by a male audience or a female audience. There were female movie stars of equal power to male movie stars. Movies were made with subject matter that was equally appealing to different to both uh, genders. And now, overwhelmingly, that is not the case, despite the fact that we've had half a century of a, of a sort of a doctrine of sexual egality, sexual and gender egalitarianism. Um, very few movie studios have ever been run by women. There aren't that many female producers. There are way more than there used to be. But the simple fact of the matter is that this is an industry that, and, and that, that's women. So let's, and we then go on and talk about race. Okay. So the doctrine in Hollywood is that movies and TV shows and things like that, that focus on themes relating to black people and African Americans uh, are niche and uh, are uh, of, de- of, of necessity uh, going to be smaller, but because people outside the United States don't like seeing movies about black people and because white people in the United States don't like movies about black people. The second part of that is demonstrably and unbelievably untrue, right? One of the uh, Several of the biggest movie stars of the last 20 years are black, Will Smith, Denzel Washington, uh, The Rock. Uh, I mean, you know, you can go on and on and on. And, and uh, you know, among the most profitable movies ever made are the movies based on, uh, you know, relative to budget are things like Get Out, made by Jordan Peele, a uh, movie about race relations, a sort of a you know, horror movie about race relations, his second movie, Us, um, the Tyler Perry movies, which are really are made almost exclusively for black audiences. So basically, Hollywood has continued for for decades to be a sexist, racist world in which 90% of the people walk around thinking that they're that because they can get because they have enough money that they can give it to Democrats and say that they hate Republicans, that they are somehow exempt from the rules that the cultural rules that they have been laying over everybody's head. Well, forever. And John, you had this right. You, you called this from the beginning, just a payoff scheme. Right. Well, eventually it's a payoff scheme because this happened, you know, Jesse Jackson did this in, 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 on Wall Street in the 1980s. What's going to happen? There are these four categories of diversity, uh, which, which is actually thought through to some degree because, of course, how diverse can you be in front of the camera if you're making a movie set in 17th century England? Like, you know, you can't have a lot of black people in it. So the idea is, well, if you can't have a movie that can't have black people in it, there should at least be a bunch of black people behind the camera working on sets, working on, you know, photography, uh, producing, whatever. So how are they going to do this? Uh, but not just black people, by the way, people of color, like according to the, the list is, you know, Hispanics, LGBTQ, p- people with disabilities. It's Latin, Latinx or Latinx. La- Latinx, right. It's okay. Right. It's not, no, not Hispanics anymore. Okay. Unless you're Hispanic and then it's Hispanic. Right. But if you're okay. not Hispanic, then right. it's Latinx. Right. Okay. So, um, so these categories, so how are they going to end up making sure that these, that these productions fill the, you know, pass muster, they're going to hire a consultant. There's going to be an entire consultancy business that arises, probably started by Ibram X. Kendi or by Robin D'Angelo or somebody like that, who will be paid off by the movies. There'll be a line in the movie budget for diversity, uh, you know, diversity management, and they'll get a million dollars and they'll send three or four people to set. Is They will... They will keep half a million of the million and they will then pay the other half a million to six or seven people who will be sent to the set, who will be given phony baloney jobs and be in the credit like executive producer, which is like, right. Well, right that's the, the ultimate <laughs> the phony credit. baloney job, but like, you know, assistant to the director of cinematography or whatever. And, and, and they will dot all the I's and cross all the T's and the, and this diversity industry will therefore have, every reason to certify that these productions pass muster because they're going to make an enormous amount of money off the, these productions by 
uh, by paying off the diversity police. But John, you you had uh, started this conversation by saying you're happy about this or you're entertained by this. And I, I want to ask why, because I, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm horrified. And because it also, it's going to just translate into worse entertainment for us because there, there are projects that are going to be scrapped that are scrapped since, since this announcement, you know, because no one's going to bother to make uh, a movie that's, that's not going to tick the, enough of the right boxes. And to okay. add to that real quick, yeah. let me just say the other aspect we should mention, it's not just domestic identity politics, but if you look at how Hollywood is dealing with China right now, literally you have movie studios like Disney who claim out of on the moral high ground that they can't film in a state like Georgia because it has a fetal heartbeat law that Disney disagrees with, but literally thanks a province in China that is hosting Uyghur concentration camps and filmed near the concentration yeah. camps. I mean, that's okay. where I'm like, I get off the boat. Okay, well... Here's why. Now, if, if I'm right, and the most cynical reading is that they'll hire this, they'll, they'll, there'll be this creation of this diversity industry that will be paid off to make sure that everything works, then fine. If it doesn't work, if, if in fact, uh, the activists wise up and don't, and the, the real activists, the ones who really want revolutionary change, uh, aren't so easily bought off, then this world of these frat boy, network executives and studio executives and independent producers and people like that are going to find themselves under real pressure for the first time in their lives to put their money where their mouth is and not to walk around with this disgusting attitude that, you know, everybody else needs to hew to politically correct standards but they can do or say and be whatever they want to be because it is a for some reason the entertainment industry is an industry that rewards sociopathy in a way that very few others do um, because nobody really knows how things become successes or failures because nobody really understands what a good movie is or a bad movie because almost all successes are due to a kind of dumb luck except in very few cases where you have, you know, really visionary producers like this guy, Kevin Feige, who is the Marvel guy. Uh, you know, every generation makes two or three of them. And otherwise, everybody else is just sort of a crap, playing craps, rolling dice. It's roulette, it's Kino. And so basically, uh, they have no standards. They don't want any standards. They pay themselves off. They pay each other off. And so let them now, as I say, and then at the Oscars, they archly talk about themselves as though they are just the most wonderful people on earth, full of their high morality and all that. So is it terrible that we're breaking down and reconstituting as this kind of diversity culture? Yes. Is it fun to watch Hollywood go into the meat grinder the way it keeps avoiding going into the meat grinder? Yes, is that nihilistic? Sure. Okay, but we haven't. <laughs> we have we get to be nihilistic a little bit. But we have an example of them doing this exact same thing on a smaller scale just a few years ago. The Times Up movement in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein uh, Me Too movement was supposed to be exactly what this is doing more broadly for identity politics, but for women in Hollywood. And what we see is that just as you said, John, nobody really knows how to make a success. But when somebody does and when they do it more than once, as Weinstein did with his company for almost a decade, then they are given cover for a whole bunch of sinful behavior. And that continues and everybody covers it up. It's not just that there are one or two people who, you know, brush something under the rug. It is literally an open, open secret um, in Hollywood when someone like Weinstein is successful because they're all in. It's, it's similar to what I think Noah has said many times about presidencies. Once someone has power, everybody around them is complicit in maintaining power. And so I doubt, I actually think regardless of how much they prosecute these goals and all this, you know, count everything up. And I mean, whatever little, you know, deputized academy member is going to follow through on this, it's going to end up like the Time's Up movement, a kind of combination of a mea culpa and a window dressing. And I don't think that if someone's vastly successful, they're not going to buy into this idea of just having a front person who claims to be the to satisfy the diversity requirement. Look, I, I think that's, I think that's, that's true. But I also think that um, 
there are things that are true about the motion picture industry that are not true of other industries. I mean, this stat that I that I cited to you, that 92% of all directors making movies in the United States for major studios are male. That's a real thing. Like, uh, uh, it's not like that in, in, in other elite businesses. Half of all doctors are women. Half of all lawyers are women. You know, uh, uh, Every corporate, every corporate suite in the United States has women in, in, in major positions now. Um, somehow Hollywood was left, uh, it was fine. It's somehow fine because, you know, when you sit down, you go in the back room, you close the door, it's like, well, you know, women can't really handle. They can't really, you know, it got to be tough on set. They're really not going to be tough enough on set. And you know, this is a racist country. We can't be making movies about black people. White people aren't going to go see it. And, you know, Indians and the Chinese, they don't like black people. So they're not going to, we can't, we can't green light a movie with a black hero because they're not going to make, it's going to make no money except Black Panther, which made a billion three worldwide. Every time. And then it's like, well, that doesn't count. You know, it's like, you know, um, Until 2011, there was a general, absolutely known thing, which is that R-rated comedies could not star women because no nobody would go. Men wouldn't want to see them because they're frat boy comedies, and women wouldn't because be too vulgar. And then Bridesmaids came out and made 200 million dollars. And you know what? When people were making these pronouncements in these suites, they could have been spending 10 years making $200 million grossing movies, but but they didn't. Why? Because it would have upset their apple cart. Because suddenly they would have had to be dealing with a whole set of new uh, new ideas. Like, you know what? If, like, movies made by women could account for half the box office, you know, having a bunch of, you know, Jewish guys from the Pacific Palisades running every motion picture business might not it might not be necessary for them to be the ones who are running the business somebody else might have some that's all i'm saying is like this is one place in which the kinds of accusations about corporate america's hostility toward uh race and gender which are i think largely unfair this very liberal very left wing industry deserves every criticism it gets on this front and it's all a protection racket for themselves that's why i'm happy even though it's bad it's really terrible don't get me wrong it's terrible it is terrible that people are going to be standing there right as noah said like looking to see who has frizzy hair on a set but it's i mean my first reaction when i read this was this is jadanovism um, but it's not about content, really. I mean, we're not talking about the content of these. You don't. You don't even have to enforce that. It's not like the the codes, whatever those codes were that were lasted until like 1968, and where a certain amount of certain content was pre-screened out of screenplays. Um, but it's not really about the content of the production per se. We're not talking about. Um, certain themes that need to be advanced as though you would have to police that it's, it's sort of an unspoken stigma against, you know, producing art that is counter revolutionary. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it's not, it's not a content mandate on Hollywood. It's just about the makeup of these production, the, the sets and the productions themselves. So it's not Soviet realism per se. Well, not yet, but um, you know, but you wouldn't, but, you, but you don't have to mandate that because this is, if it is Jadenovism, it's coming from below. It's not being imposed on these companies. This is something that this is the, the revolution from below. And so the, the stigma that enforces it is social, not legal or governmental. But can I also just complain? I'm, I'm a little more on Abe's side of this. Like I don't actually enjoy it because I feel like there are so many aspects of um, our, our, leisure time and our leisure activities that have been infected with this. I mean, there's a whole, we could do an entire show about what's happened to professional sports, obviously. Um, And this is a similar kind of politicization of something that 
shouldn't be politicized in this way. Not to say that you can't make a political film. I mean, those can be very useful documentaries, et cetera, et cetera. But the idea that absolutely every aspect of this has to be uh, managed in this I- identity politics way is, is, uh, it, it makes me sad, in part because this is the same group of people who argue vigorously and contemptuously about a previous century's moral codes, right? The, there were all those rules about, you know, studios had for their own uh, employees and particularly for their stars about how they could behave in their private lives. And it was all managed. And that was seen as just, you know, completely ridiculous and, and you know, terribly uh, you know, puritanical. So the funny thing is, this is another strain of puritanism, but it's accepted and endorsed because it gives it, you know, they think it's satisfying. What constituency are they satisfying though? Because it, it's not their audience. It's the same thing I want to say to professional sports. <laughs> it's like, you're not actually making people happy by making Colin Kaepernick a Madden football option when everybody knows he was a terrible quarterback to begin with. <laughs> it's signaling, but who are they signaling to? Aren't they self-signaling? I, 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 it's a genuine question. I really don't know who they think is the audience for this. But ultimately, this is the question about um, uh, social stigma and, and, and that which is acceptable socially is that um, when you have uh, an explosion of virtue signaling like this, uh, in the wake particularly of, you know, George Floyd, uh, just as you had it in the wake of the Time's Up moment with uh, Harvey Weinstein, um, what what you get is people wanting there to be changes in their vicinity that they can point to so that they feel better about themselves i don't know how else to how else to describe it no, that and, makes sense but safe safe reform right not real reform <laughs> well i mean it, you know in in the case of you know th- there was a story as i recall in england i'm now trying to remember the details that um, British publishers, I believe, a couple of years ago, announced that uh, by 2025, or the Writers Guild in England or something like that, that that all publications of books and things like that needed to conform or reflect the social makeup of society. So that under those circumstances, if Britain was, you know, X percent this and Y percent that and G percent this that every publishing house was supposed to publish in accordance with those numbers and things like that. Now, that's a terrifying fact, since, of course, the sole criteria, the two criteria for publishing a book should be, A, is the book good, or B, will the book sell, right? Those are the two, you know, because the, the two of those are, can be often mutually exclusive, but... When a book sells, it can support the publication of a book that is good that's not going to sell, right? That That's part of the structure of Many of us benefited of the from the publication of Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. I'm just putting exactly. that out there in general. Exactly. Many exactly. writers. <laughs> well, 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 well put. So, but I mean, so that's a, that's a terrifying thing. And of course, if everything ends up uh, adhering to formulas like that, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's the death of thought. It's the death of quality. It's the death of everything else. But Abe, I want to put you on the spot here for in one, one way. I, I've told this story before, but a couple of years ago, I assigned you an article to write on the war on the mer- on, on meritocracy. And, uh, you went off and started reading about meritocracy and, uh, and, and why meritocracy is important. And after like two months, you came back to me and you said, I can't write this piece. I can't write this piece. Why did you say you, you couldn't write it? I think there were two main reasons. One was that um, the meritocracy, as we took it to be, was not functioning very cleanly as a meritocracy in that there were so many ways to game the system for uh, those uh, of means. This is This was in particular... Um, regarding uh, school admissions and college admissions and things that the meritocratic principle wasn't really operating. Um, And the second was that the entire system that the meritocracy um, sort of fed um, was itself this anti-meritocratic propaganda machine, right? It was all about getting into a bunch of schools and institutions that then preached and um, re-educated 
to tell you how non-meritocratic, how anti-meritocratic the American system actually was. So it was it this it was the the seeds of its own destruction um, were were right. were there the whole time. Right. Well, that's exactly what the story is in Hollywood. Yes, is <laughs> all I'm saying. And I mean, this is this is the um, this is the danger of our 240 year experiment here is that, is that um, one of the reason that the, one of the reasons that the system is under stress and is in crisis is that some of these criticisms that a lot of us were inclined to dismiss as simply some part of kind of post sixties anti-American nonsense garbage. It turns out that there are aspects to them that we all have to take kind of seriously, which is that, um, if you have a, a an admission system uh, for uh, elite universities that does put the finger on the scale not only of legacies, which then of course creates a almost an aristocratic uh, system uh, where priv- where where position is handed down, not just money but social position as granted by these institutions is handed down from generation to generation. Uh, but also that, um, the very ideas in the, the, that arist that aristocracy then peddles these ideas that have the weird effect of maintaining that aristocracy, even though the ideas are not, it's some kind of weird Jesuitical esoteric system where all the privilege is maintained while attacking the notion of privilege, well, and, and literally, yeah. that's why we have these radicalized wealthy kids throwing Molotov cocktails at cops in the street this summer. Like that is yeah. the that's the end game right, right there. Right. So, and then fleeing to their yeah. parents' second Connecticut estate in the most recent case. Yeah. I mean, it's a very we're, we find ourselves in a very strange position here because um, the the counterculture became the culture. The counterculture was anti competitive. Uh, anti-capitalist, anti—you uh, know—achievement. Let's say you know, achievement was some kind of trap, middle-class bourgeois trap. That was the sort of the '60s preachment, and now you have this gloss of all of that that is layered onto savagely capitalist, savagely uh, uh, unequal uh, systems of perpetuated privilege that's a real thing it's just that when they talk about white privilege they talk you know when when the left talks about white privilege it's always talking about some you know lower middle class kid who doesn't have any privilege and it's not talking about the people who themselves are privileged talking about how dangerous white privilege is which is the actual danger Right. I, I mean, that's the that's that's the oddity. I mean, this is a this is a conundrum. It's a it's a it's a paradox and it's very hard to get your mind around. So, as I say, in some sense, if if the pressure is being put on them. And not on us, <laughs> I kind of appreciate it. I kind of appreciate it a little bit because I'm not going to defend them. You know, it's like, where are we going to stand here and say this is terrible it's just absolutely terrible that, you know, uh, David Geffen and Steven Spielberg and, you know, who are, you know, hosting fundraisers for people who want to destroy the very system that made them, you know, billionaires or whatever, you know, are are now going to have to jump through some hoops to satisfy the demands of the people that they are empowering. That's all I got to say. Now, should we turn to raw... Should we just turn now to, you know, conventional bland politics? Well, we have one more petard hoisting that I I don't no, know if it that? fits the paradigm here, but yes. it's one that I would like to submit as a potential candidate for petard hoisting, um, which is the tale of Jessica Krug. <clears throat> this was this uh, humanities professor who um, pulled a, uh, a race shifting act i don't know how else to describe it what was the name of the woman who was very famous for doing this? rachel dolezal rachel dolezal rachel dolezal so she did a rachel dolezal she uh lived her life as a woman of color when she was not and advanced through the ranks of the academy as a result of her assumed identity and was she self-canceled 
she came out and said, I should, and this is a quote, I should be canceled um, and proceeded to cancel herself. So she threw herself on the pyre saying she was, you know, a, a fraud and, uh, and what have you. And now, now lives in ignominy. But people have been going back into her record and found that she was fairly radical. And one of the clips that is making the rounds is her at this academic conference using very uh, polysyllabic academic jargon, which doesn't really say anything, but constitutes a secret handshake and allows you to believe that you're a part of this club um, and in which she delivers a, uh, a very high-minded defense of a uh, an attack on a 15 year old boy in New York in which he was macheted to death for the crime of being a part of this youth organization, which worked with police, which worked with the NYPD. And she you know, said that it, it, in very couched terms that, yeah, this is sort of bad, right? But we don't talk about the conditions that resulted in, in his murder, the, the, implying very clearly to everyone's ears that this was something that was justified. It was a justified retributive murder because he was working with authority figures. And this is dawning on people upon whom it can dawn, who have the, the cognitive ability to recognize the immorality of these kind of comments, that how is it that this woman managed to swim through the ether of the academy and the humanities for so long while espousing these views, but yet had could not sustain her her career could not sustain the shock of the notion that she was white, um, and that was the sin that resulted in her, in her defenestration. And when I was researching my book, you know, I steeped myself in this world of um, really delightful, um, morbid. Uh, uh, apologia for violence and uh, incitement to violence in the name of uh, political activism. And it is disturbingly common, particularly in academia and the humanities, when they don't perceive themselves to be in a room full of mixed company, that they allow themselves to indulge in these fantasies of the most retributive revolutionary street violence. Um, and, and they couch it in academic terms to make it appear more legitimate. But it doesn't take a long time to get down to the student level who, who, who cannot reproduce that kind of language. And it is just as ugly and uh, atrocious and, and, uh, and murderous and violent as any other street thug would be talking about these kind of activities. And you have to think that at a certain point, because all this language is migrating up from the, the academy and into society writ large, that this stuff is going to follow soon enough if, if it's not here already. The, the, well, the, the fascinating thing about Krug's story, like Dolezal's story, is the weird, you know, that what they're being condemned for, particularly by people of color, is their basically minstrelsy, right? They live their lives as professional minstrels, but they believed it, right? Well, at least Dolezal claims to have believed it. She, I don't know what this Krug woman believes at all. But the, but the strange thing is how they, they, they both, took on as well the political ideologies of, you know, more progressive minded uh, people of color as part of their identity. And they were, that was actually what they, and they were quite public about it. Like Dolezal was the head of an NAACP chapter and, and this Krug woman was, you know, a very active scholar in a lot of these, you know, identity politics fields. So what's interesting to me is that they clearly both thought there would be social benefit to passing as black. And that's a very strange historical reversal in this country from what used to be passing, which was when light skinned African Americans would try to pass as white and other ethnicities try to pass as that. So it, that the pat, the shift in just, you know, a couple generations of what, what bet social benefit comes from passing is just fascinating as a kind of cultural change. I think, I think there's a, another element uh, at work here, which is that, um, people on the left, especially in academia, but media um, are more reluctant to condemn a person of color who preaches and flirts with violent rhetoric um, than they are to do so when it comes uh, to, to a white person. Um, and this also, I mean, this, to take this back to entertainment for one, for one moment, um, the world of rap and hip hop still is a, pretty much gets a pass on, on me too. And, um, racism and bigotry and violence and, uh, 
all the rest of it, right? So, so, yeah. so, so Krug, under her her invented identity, was um, enjoying some some of the some of that freedom temporarily. Okay, I'm going to use a very I'm going to use a very high and a very low example to describe what I think is going on here. The high example, not high, but high in sort of social standing, uh, was the Whitney Biennial of 1993. Uh, the uh, the most um, the highest level uh, experimental modern art exhibit in the United States, um, and it was kind of the uh, an enunciation of the role in which let's call it, identitarian art was going to play henceforth because an artist named Daniel Joseph Martinez in, had created this thing that everyone had to put on when they went into the biennial. It was a button and the button said, I can't imagine ever wanting to be white. And since of course, everybody who went to the Whitney biennial in 1993 was white they were all wearing this button that said, I can't imagine ever wanting to be white. Now, what was the meaning of this? The meaning of this was, of course, quite the op- was supposed to be quite the opposite. It was supposed to be, it's so great to be white that, um, you know, uh, why wouldn't anybody just want to be white? Now you're sort of being put in the position of thinking through what it might mean to be a person of color. Because who would choose to be a person of color in America if they could choose otherwise? So that's one part of the amniotic fluid in which the attitudes that Jessica Krug, uh, you know, then uh, you know was birthed in and then uh, arose from, comes from. And the other is a very low. It would be the third season of the Real World, the MTV series, and. Uh, Two uh, culturally prominent people appeared on the first episode of that. One, uh, Rachel Campos, now um, a leading uh, conservative pundit, the wife of the former Congressman Sean Duffy from Wisconsin, mother of nine. Uh, She's on Fox all the time. And she was there as a conservative Latina. Um. And uh, so she's on, they're on a train, they're going to San Francisco, she's one. And the second is Pedro Zamora, who was a Cuban gay guy who had AIDS. And so, uh, and then there was a third, uh, a young woman, a white blonde woman whose name I can't remember. And as Pedro's talking about being gay and his sexuality and he has AIDS, and then Rachel's talking about being a Latina and, you know, growing up with her, her, her abuela and this and that and the other thing. The, the white girl, the 19, 20-year-old white girl, bursts into tears. And she says, I'm so boring. I'm so boring. I don't have anything. I'm just white. I'm so boring. And I thought this was a, this is a very striking kind of... Um, you know, thing that that told you something about America in the 1990s, that it was no longer, no longer a circumstance in which being a person on, you know, if, if you were going to be sort of a person on TV, uh, you, you know, it was already clear to, to, to this young woman that she was going to be an also ran. She was a supporting player. She wasn't going to be a star because she was just a white girl and she had nothing else to offer because here was a, you know, pretty Latina and here was a, uh, you know, a guy with AIDS and she was just nothing. Well, but what it signaled was an interesting, it, it is an interesting cultural moment, right? Because it's when a lot of critical race theory and gender theory was really becoming entrenched in the academy, but was still kind of hadn't trickled down into, into, you know, mainstream thinking yet. But the, but the, impulse to perform to first to to figure out one's identity on those kinds of characteristics and then to publicly perform it was still only largely relegated to public figures and hollywood types now and in large part the internet uh, aided and abetted this and certainly social media did now everybody is constantly performing their identity right and and in that context, it makes Dolezal and Krug actually uh, the, the logical conclusion, not the exception, because the demand to perform one's identity is constant. And it's now something everyday Americans are expected to do. And if they don't, they're at least expected to sign on to others' performance of their identity, particularly if it's about race or sex. 
But worse, right. I mean, identity is expected to constitute and to to impart some immutable traits. Um, there was this <clears throat> story a couple of years ago about uh, Kirkus, which is this book review. Kirkus, uh, yeah. Kirkus, right, which reviews books. And there's, um, in young adult literature has been rocked by this social justice mania for a long time. And so Kirkus in- instituted this policy whereby the reviewers of, uh, of books have to have a particular identity that allows them to review these books. If the book is about uh, Muslims or observant uh, religious people or people of color, what have you, it has to be reviewed by them because otherwise you could get a skewed review. It's called the own voices policy. And I mean, that's, we used to call that prejudice, right? The notion that you could understand a person to believe what's in a person's heart and mind based on the stereotypes associated with their uh, culture or external features, that's bigotry, but it's somehow become enlightened and is now being codified into at least cultural standards. Well, it can't right. be long before it migrates up into yeah. law. In corporations, the HR policy, they call it uh, the, the same version of that is lived experience. You have to acknowledge the lived experience of someone of color or a woman or you know, so. But what lived experience right, but, but, cancels is any actual. Okay. But, but OK, so if we get back to Jessica Krug, let's here's the thing. So you read her her thing where she says I should be canceled. Now, of course, it's almost certainly the case that she did this self-revelation because she was about to be exposed. Someone was going to, someone was going to drop the dirty dime on her. And so she decided to, to get her last licks in being a a famous, notorious person herself, rather than having it visited upon her. Nonetheless, uh, you read and you're like, she's crazy. She must be a crazy person. Look at her. She walks around pretending to be an Afro Latina she she uh, yells at people who live in her apartment building, calls people, you know, calls a neighbor a crazy white bitch, steals her packages, you know, goes on this uh, virtual city council meeting in New York in uh, June of this year, uh, posing as a Latina and then like, you know, says uh, Jews are terrible, even though she herself is actually a Jew. And, you know, the Israelis are training cops to kill people. And so she must be crazy. But why must she be crazy? It worked, didn't it? I mean, she's a tenured professor at George Washington University. A tenured professor. She had a book published in 2018 that was nominated for two major awards in the worlds of race and critical theory. It worked. Her scam worked. It was like the so-called yeah. hoax. Uh, I mean, they, it does work. It worked for Dolezal for a long time as well. Right. I mean, right. and if and race got- if race doesn't exist along a spectrum and confers certain immutable traits, you should not be able to portray that race if you're not that right. I mean, if you can't, if if these things are so self evident, you shouldn't be able to pass as somebody who's you know adopting a, an ah. assumed identity. Ah. You shouldn't. And of course you're not once you, oh, you mean because you shouldn't because it should, everybody should just It should know. be self-evident. Okay. Well, first <laughs> of all, we don't know. This is the fascinating thing about the internet age. Um, You know, when people wanted to disappear and turn themselves into somebody else before 1960, it wasn't so hard You know, I mean, this is the whole, you know, myth of the Wild West is that people went there, you know, after they killed a man in the East, you know, because who would know? They changed their name. Nobody's got birth certificates. Nobody's got social security numbers. There's no identity. There's no way of proof of identity. People just turned themselves into somebody else, became somebody else. Now it's almost impossible because there's a record of everybody. There's a history with everybody. Everybody has a social security number from birth. They have driver's licenses. I mean, do you think Jessica Krug would have kept the name Jessica Krug if she could have changed it to something else? She couldn't. That's the one thing she couldn't change. Uh, Christine said you read somewhere that she didn't go back to some family funeral because she was worried that somebody would out, she would be outed by, by someone. So she, she did whatever she could to keep herself uh, apart. So, yeah. So all I'm saying is like, we don't know how many billions of people played this game all the time. Jews have played it, you know, 
from time immemorial. And, you know, if you were, if you were a Jewish male, there was always a problem because of circumcision, <laughs> you know, when, when everybody wasn't circumcised, it could become pretty clear whether or not you were, whether or not you were a Jew. Um, but people passed forever. And now you're only not supposed to be able to pass because race is an immutable construct. But I'm, um, and nobody ever, because no one could ever imagine wanting to be black, you know, in 1900, I'm sure white people didn't go around pretending to be black until now. But, you know, being able to have your identity, f- fool around with your identity is part of, it's Shakespeare's doubling. Like it's every plot device known to man, people pretending to be other people. That's what comedy all comedies of, of 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 errors are based on people pretending to be other people. So, how about this? It's a transitional phenomenon, and and Rachel Dolezal and uh, Jessica Krug, and I'm sure there are a few others out there that are yet to be outed. These are people who, um, as left wing academia transitions entirely into. Um, a practice whereby your identity is the message, is the medium. Um, um, it will there will be no what what sort of future do you have? What can you work on if you are but a white a, a white pos- scholar on the left? Um, you you can't be you. They, there's a there's resentment for what they call the white saviors, right? So you can't be one of those. Right. Um, and you don't have an interesting story to play with as as your topic, you, you're, as your, yourself. So we're, we're getting at the, the last few uh, of the of the white cohort who went into the into that game. Um, the ones who are trying to who are trying to pass as as people of color and more exotic people, uh, they'll be outed. And then from then on in, well, no, no okay, white how about, how, about, how about this is a possibility? Uh, reverse apartheid. Or reverse, uh, you know, r- racial theory, according to which you are going to have to prove that you have a drop of blood. That's right. You have a dr- right. I mean, the 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 you know, uh, it's sort of the what what got Elizabeth Warren was that uh, Indian tribes actually do have genetic markers. And she so should be included can... in this group of people trying to pass for something. Yeah, yep, exactly. Definitely. Yeah. Okay, but here's here's why this isn't going to happen, Abe, because Elizabeth Warren wasn't got by anything. This is all a status game for white people, too. Probably primarily for white people, too, at this point. It's, as John said, a protection racket. So the second it begins to threaten their status, then it becomes a much more viable principle. Well, I'm just saying that it's viable, except... Um people is it now when you go to some you know you go to some uh convention of african american race theory you know if there ever are conventions again after covid but you'll go to some convention are people going to like be eyeing each other you know uh, and looking at, at uh, i mean i worked with a i worked with a guy at the washington times in the 1980s named David Mills, uh, who died tragically. He ended up becoming a very successful television writer. He, he, he and I worked together on, on a package of stories that, uh, that led to the firing of Professor Griff from Public Enemy. So he was, a, he was a guy, and he worked with David Simon, the guy who started The Wire. They worked together at the University of Maryland. So David was a black guy, uh, wrote for the University of Maryland paper came to work at the Washington Times. He did these stories. They were amazing. And um, he was very light-skinned. And uh, when he did this package uh, that, you know, sort of caused this crisis in Public Enemy, Professor Griff went on some radio show and said, I didn't know he was a brother. I thought he was Greek. He looked Greek to me. And now that I know he's a brother, he's a traitor. Like, you know, if, if he were, if he were, if he had been Greek, it would have been just what I would have expected from some Greek guy. But that's not, you know, that's not the, the story here. So what if David went to the National Association of Black Journalists in 2021 after these stories? Would people be eyeing him, wondering whether he was there under false pretenses, that he was passing as black to help himself? I mean, that's where that's where this all starts getting crazy. It's like this uh, um, the amazing um, 
story. Anyway, uh, I won't go into that. So, uh, cause we're, we're running, we're running very long, but basically everyone is being hoist on everyone's petard. Uh, and, uh, and, and everything is just uh, terrible and you should all be crushingly morose because everything is terrible. Even if Hollywood is going to suffer and it's fun to watch Jessica Krug get destroyed. So I had to end on a low note because this has been so spirited and kind of a fun conversation. And we haven't even talked about a poll. Isn't that great? And I was going there and then Noah switched directions. Rescued us. Rescued us from a conversation about the polls. So uh, we'll probably talk about polls tomorrow. Uh, I do want to say one thing, though, before we go. Look at the New York Times coronavirus tracker. We're now up to three weeks of negative numbers on uh, case growth and deaths. And the deaths are going down in below 500 a day and lower still. I, it's a matter of time, though, before the Sturgis rally kills at least 250,000 Americans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. We haven't even gotten into that, like, that bull BS study of all BS studies. And uh, what about the one that said that we're going to have 500,000 deaths by December? Like or 300,000 deaths? Model. Yeah, the IHME model, which has been so successful. And people just report it. Anyway, I, we can't go on. <laughs> we have to stop. So... For Christine Abenow, I'm John Bob Keep the candle burning.